All right, good morning. Uh, welcome to Bethany. My name's Silas Sham, uh, associate pastor here, and it's great to see you all. Um, as the kids leave, quick question for anyone. Is anyone a Radiolab fan? Anyone listen to Radiolab? Yeah? Okay. From WNYC, right? That's good. Um, well, I love podcasts. I listen to a lot of them, and typically I'll listen to sermons or lectures or things on food and culture. Um, and so I was just flying back from Tennessee, and one of the things that you can't do when you're in airplane mode is stream new content, sadly. So I had to go back in the archives. I had plenty stored, and I stumbled upon a podcast called Color from Radiolab. Color. It's, I think, like three years old, four years old. And anyways, as I was going through it, it's a fascinating study on how we engage color, how color impacts our lives, but more so, one of the more fascinating parts of it was when they started talking about how ancient cultures were not able to see the color blue. Right? Or more accurately, they could see it, but they couldn't recognize the color blue. So for instance, think about the Odyssey or the, the Iliad, right? ancient Greek epics. There's these, uh, they're basically blockbusters, right? They're describing the world. And the way the ocean is described is described as being wine dark, not blue. And the same thing is applied to oxen. So the ocean is the same color as oxen, wine dark. And there's a whole bunch of examples they go through throughout the course of the podcast. And I'm not going to go through all of them. There's a lot. But even more than this, ultimately they decided and landed on saying, Ancient Greek literature didn't mention the color blue. And then in the 1800s, there was another person who took that data and said, I'm going to see if this happens in other cultures as well. So he goes about and he starts looking and sees if there's a trend among Icelandic culture, Hindu, Chinese, Arabic, and Hebrew, the Bible. And he noted there is not a single mention of the color Blue. There's gold, there's silver, white, black, um, green, red, brown, but there's no mention of blue. So what gives here? What are we not seeing here? I think the most compelling explanation, there are many, but the most compelling explanation for this lack of seeing in the millennia past has to do with the way language shapes how we perceive the world around us. So in 2006, someone replicated a study, a psychologist, and what they did was they went to a tribe in Nambia, so right beside Botswana in Africa, right here, and they visited a tribe that doesn't have a word in their language for the color blue. They have many different words for different gradients of green, though but nothing for blue. And what they did was he had a test. On a computer screen, there's 12 squares, and all the squares, 11 of them are the same. They're green, and one was blue. And then he told this, um, he told many of the participants, the Hambian participants, to pick out the square that is off, the one square that's not like the other ones. And over and over and over, they couldn't pick out the square. They just kind of blanked. 
And then he did a reverse study where he had 11 that were green, and then he had another one box that was two shades lighter. And he asked English speakers who only have green to pick out the one box. And English speakers couldn't do it. If you look it up, it really is pretty, pretty striking. If you saw the blue one, it's really obvious for us. But they struggled to pick it out. And so one of the things that comes out of this, the conclusion that scholars have come to, they've done this in Russian as well, they've done this in multiple ways, the conclusion is that until we have words or language for something, it's likely that we will not be able to recognize what is sitting in plain sight. So in this case, the tribe and ancient cultures, it's probable that they were not able to recognize the color blue because it doesn't naturally appear in nature very often. Normally, it's a synthetic thing that's created, or it's a refraction. It's not a pigment, per se. So all that to say, because there was no framework or language that made their recognition of blue possible, put differently, they very likely saw blue as we do now, but they were never able to recognize it or to notice it, even though the light's hitting their eyes, the waves are hitting their eyes. They never were trained to process how to see the color blue. And the same thing happens in art. You know, you'll see paintings of the sea, green or black or something like that. So in a similar way, when it comes to Christmas, when it comes to Advent, when it comes to the birth of Christ, I think especially for those of us who have been in church for a long time, who have grown up in the church, I think for many of us, um, we have become so familiar with readings and thinking in specific ways about Christmas season, right, about Advent, that we may miss what is sitting right in front of us. And so this morning, I hope to reveal or unveil what might be hidden. It's the third week of Advent, the arrival of God made flesh. I hope to be able to give us some handles this morning to help us be able to read Isaiah 11 in a way that opens it up for us so that we can see and recognize God in our midst. Sound like a plan? All right. So over the last couple weeks, we've been exploring different scriptures in Isaiah. They're on the board back there. And there's two things that have stuck out. And the first thing is what they might be telling us about Christ's coming the advent, the arrival of Christ. And the second thing is, we've looked at how Christmas isn't a time of just celebration or proclamation. It's a time of transformation. It's supposed to affect us. It's supposed to lead to how we live our lives, shape us. So Advent is a time where Christmas, where Christians are called to reflect on the story of God and recognize how our stories are all shaped by this greater story, the story of God coming to earth as a little child in a manger. The song we heard this morning, right? The kiddos, that was great. But just in case you've missed the previous two weeks, the first week, Isaiah 35, we talked about renewal, restoration, and the promise of return. So the idea that the story of Christ during Christmas shouldn't just leave our gaze here, right? Not here and now, but that it motivates us to look forward to step towards our true home. 
So I think Jack used the phrase to actively hope now in the present and to root that hope in our soon coming king in the kingdom that is coming, the advent that's coming. And then last week from Isaiah 61, we saw how here Isaiah is foretelling Christ's mission. He almost gives a mission statement that Christ will go on and um, take up. So how Christ's life and consequently our lives are meant to be punctuated by being bearers of good news to the people around us. Now I want you to notice how both these texts are specifically prescriptive. There's action steps that are tied to these texts. So they're prophecies that offer specifics on how Israel is supposed to react once they are a restored people. And this makes sense since both these chapters, 35 and 61, are written after Israel has already been exiled. Right? They're already exiled. They're occupied by Assyria or Babylon. And these two chapters have action steps embedded within the text. But this morning, our chapter, chapter 11, is a little different. Because this chapter is more descriptive, and it's written with the assumption that judgment hasn't come yet. Right? Judgment hasn't arrived yet when this text is written. So instead, Isaiah 11 is describing what's, what God's judgment is going to look like, what it's meant to form within Israel, and more importantly, what reconciliation is supposed to look like. And then it moves to the action steps. It moves to what you can do once the groundwork is laid. So chapter 11 is descriptive in that way. That's what it's trying to do. So in passages from previous weeks, we're supposed to intuit what the definition of God's kingdom is supposed to look like. This week, we're supposed to fill in the action steps once we hear what God's kingdom looks like. So today in Isaiah 11, the author is more concerned about laying groundwork than he is about executing action steps. And this is why Isaiah 11 starts off with a call to recognize God's righteousness. It's the first point in your bulletin if you're following along. Recognize God's righteousness. So starting at verse 1, we read, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Now don't let the wordplay, the Hebraic wordplay, go over our heads. In Hebrew, the word here for shoot is also the same word for rod or scepter. It's the same word. So there's a double meaning, right? The double entendre. This shoot that will come forth from the stump of Jesse is not just a promise to continue the lineage of Jesse. It is that, but it's also talking about a kingly line, a royal line. It is Christ who will rule with true wisdom by the power of the Spirit resting on him. And that's what we see in these first five verses. This is why the gospel, in the gospels, this phrasing of the spirit resting on him, on Jesus, at baptism is so powerful. It's coming back to this moment. Right? Jesus' baptism is coming back to this moment. So starting at the Jordan River in his baptism, Jesus is living out the prophecy of Isaiah 11 and inaugurating his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. 
New life, new kingdom. And then hot on the heels of Isaiah 10, while Isaiah details what life under Assyrian rule will look like, here in chapter 11, Isaiah is attempting to answer people's fears. Right? So he's saying, Assyria's judgment is coming in chapter 10, and then he's responding to people's fears in chapter 11. And he's contrasting Assyria by God's rule. So in 10, it's all about Assyria. 11, it's all about God. So chapter 10 highlights the false wisdom of Assyria. If we looked at 10.13, they are experts in warfare, in the arts of plunder, and in the art of destruction. But now in Isaiah 11, Isaiah is contrasting this false wisdom, expertise in preying on the weak or the vulnerable, with true wisdom and counsel and knowledge of God. This is what's in 11.2. In chapter 10, Isaiah talks about how under Assyria, people's shoulders will be stooped under the yoke, under oppression. But under the rule of God, the root of Jesse shall stand tall. And that will be a signal for all the people. And just like how in Genesis, God spoke the world into being, and it was good by the words and the breath of God The earth will be sanctified and wickedness will cease. This is verse 4. Because the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as waters cover the sea. This brings us back to the Genesis story. So I know I've been jumping around. There's lots of imagery here. But this is how Isaiah is addressing the people in chapter 11. This is addressing people's fears by talking to them in their story. He's addressing the fears of people from chapter 10 and reassuring them that Christ, the one who is coming, will not only rule with righteousness by means of how he judges and decides, but he'll also rule and create with faithfulness to his promises. So there's plenty to see in in these first five verses. So many images that Isaiah is bringing up, so many references And he's talking in hindsight, but he's also foretelling or foretelling. It's prophecy. He's doing that in faith. He's calling the people to recognize the righteousness of God. Recognize the righteousness of God. And this righteous rule, this recognition, is what makes it possible for point two, for Israel to be reconciled in relationships. Because of this recognition of righteousness, it's possible for, for relationships to be reconciled. So because of his ability to see and recognize God's righteousness in the midst of judgment and Assyrian occupation, Isaiah is able to be reconciled in relationships with his brothers, with his sisters, and with his enemies. And this is no less than what we are called to do as well. So I've mentioned before, I grew up on a hobby farm, right? My parents, my dad, pretty much anything he wanted to eat, we would grow or we would have. So we had sheep, we had one cow, we had rabbits, pheasants, peacocks, chickens, pretty much anything like that. We also had three dogs. And growing up, one of them, a little Rottweiler, was the most lazy, gentle soul you would ever imagine. 
especially when she got older, but when she was a puppy, I remember when she had somehow made her way into the sheep's pasture. And she had a nibble of one of the sheep, and then she must have been scared off by the ram, because it was just a nibble. And then she made her way into the chicken coop. And in the words of Isaiah, chapter or verse 6, where the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, that did not apply. The chickens were gone. <laughs> but whenever I read this verse particularly, it can feel a little childish. Right? A little like a fairy tale. Cows and bears grazing together, it's like at a Bambi, right? You have wolves and lambs, leopards and goats. It just seems a little unrelatable. It seems kind of fake, right? But notice how verse 6 ends. And the little child shall lead them. Again, it's Advent, so this is fresh on our minds. But I'll be the first to admit that when I read this verse, it's just difficult for me to take it seriously. It seems far-fetched. But this is why, in our context, especially for this verse, I have to keep reminding myself of point one, to recognize God's righteousness here. Recognize God's righteousness here in reconciled relationships. So Isaiah, in this verse, is making a shocking claim. Led by Christ, the little child, animals who typically assert dominance and animals who typically accept submission will forego natural order and the natural order of nature's power structures and live by the norms of God's peaceable kingdom. Are we catching that? The coming kingdom of God that we participate now, we participate in now complete, incompletely, will be fully realized later. And so I'll be honest, I don't quite know how to take this verse, relationally reconciled. There are some gaps that sometimes just seem too hard to bridge. So maybe it's division in your family or your marriage, at work, with friends. Maybe it's more generally a need for reconciliation between different communities that you are a part of, that you live in. When we start thinking about the reality of division and we witness an experience in the world, the actual thought of reconciliation can seem like it's the stuff of fiction, right? It's, it's out there over the rainbow. But friends, truly he taught us to love one another. His law is love and his gospel is peace. Chains shall he break, for the slave is our brother. And in his name, all oppression shall cease. Sweet hymns of joy, in grateful chorus raise we. Let all within us praise his holy name. Christ is the Lord. Oh, praise his name forever. His power and his glory evermore proclaim. There is hope in Isaiah's words. 
even though I struggle to believe in it. It just doesn't make sense sometimes. Reconciliation can seem senseless. It grates against our sense of possibility. It makes it seem improbable. It doesn't play out well on the odds. But perhaps this is also part of the unrecognized wisdom of this passage with animals. Something that we just miss, it's unrecognized. Sometimes, rather than common sense, reconciliation is only possible when it is actuated by the faith like that of a little child. Made possible by faith in God. Made possible by faith in Jesus. Faith in the reality that reconciliation is indeed possible. Isaiah calls us to be reconciled in relationships, in our relationships. So how is the Spirit speaking to you in this moment? But that's not all. Reconciliation is kind of a popular buzzword right now. And that's not all bad. Awareness is good. Action is good. There's plenty to celebrate when we think about even Bethany and when we think about different cultural movements that are trying to bridge divides. It's not all bad. But hear me, Bethany. Reconciliation is just patronization if it doesn't actually remake our lives. It's just patronizing if it doesn't actually change us, if it doesn't remake our lives, if it doesn't affect us at our core, if it is just a show for others. Wherever you are working towards reconciliation in your life, Reconciliation that is only like a superficially tenable dwelling with someone won't ever bridge deeply harbored divides. And of course, I do think it's important for us to recognize that not every relationship is meant to be reconciled. Reconciliation needs to be undertaken with wisdom. But from verse 6, it is not enough for wolves and lambs to be able to dwell together. Right? It's not enough for leopards to be able to rest with goats. It's not enough to just tolerate others. Because we get to verse 7. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. Notice how here we have a complete subversion of predator and prey instincts. So it's not just that the cow, the bear, and the lion are eating together. It's that their instincts have been reordered. They have been remade. And this is stunning for Isaiah to write. In the ancient Near East, typically a ruler 
when they're talked about in connection with a lion, it's used as royal propaganda. So it's a way of showing your superiority over others. Typically when a lion is connected to a ruler. So think about in the David and Goliath story, when David shows up and everyone's like, who's this guy? How come he thinks he can even go against Goliath? What's his deal? How does he have credit? Like what justifies his coming out here? And he responds by saying, well, when I was a shepherd, I fought lions and I beat them. I fought bears and I beat them. I protected my flock from wild animals day and night with just a staff and a slingshot. It's a way of showing dominance. So this is a common thread in the ancient Near East. But this ruler that we've read about in 11, the ruler that we've heralded that will come to save us, to bring us good news, the one the kids talked about in the manger, this ruler this little child. Christ the king does not need to dominate others to prove his might. Recognizing the righteousness of God, these animals have been reconciled in their relationships. And even more so, the lion, the top dog, the apex predator, has been made and remade so that his affections, his nature, In his very core, above all else, he's been remade so that community can thrive. Even more so, in verse 8 and 9, we bridge the most vulnerable, a child, playing with the most vile, a serpent, reversing the curse of Eden. Does everyone see that connection they're making? Reversing the curse of Eden. In the words of a theologian, such possibility will come only beyond history as we know it. But we anticipate it now in faith because it is God's own promise to us. Recognizing God's righteousness shows us how to be reconciled in relationships and how to be remade continually in the image of God. Recognizing God's righteousness shows us how to be reconciled in relationships. And that remakes us into God's image. As we prepare to close, listen to how Isaiah 11, our passage on the righteousness and the holy mountain of God, was talked about on December 3rd, 1956, in Montgomery, Alabama, in a speech entitled, Facing the challenge of a new age. In light of protests against desegregation, MLK delivered this at the first annual institute of nonviolence and social change. And listen to the threads of Isaiah in these words. Just listen to these. We have before us the glorious opportunity to inject a new dimension of love into the veins of our civilization. There is still a voice crying out in terms that echo across the generations, saying, love your enemies, 
Bless them that curse you. Pray for them that despitefully use you, that you may be the children of your Father, which is in heaven. This love might, be, might well be the salvation of our civilization. This is why I am so impressed with our motto for the week, freedom and justice through love. Not through violence, not through hate, no, not even through boycotts, but through love. It is true that as we struggle for freedom in America, we will have to boycott at times. But we must remember as we boycott that a boycott is not an end within itself. It is merely a means to awaken a sense of shame within the oppressor and and challenge his false sense of superiority. And catch this. But the end is reconciliation. The end is redemption. And the end is the creation of the beloved community. It is this type of spirit and this type of love that can transform oppressors into friends. It is this type of understanding, goodwill, that will transform the deep gloom of the old age into the exuberant gladness of the new age. It is this love which will bring about miracles in the hearts of humankind. Recognizing God's righteousness shows us how to be reconciled in relationship and how to be remade continually into the image of God. Meditate on these words as we sing. There will be people praying uh, who are available to pray, but meditate on these words. How is God speaking to you in this moment? May you discern well and may we discern well. And let's sing.